You know, Ellis, there's a small group of musicians in the world that you feel like you can get to know them through their music, and that is the singer, musician, songwriter, person. And that's you. We can get to know you and love you very quickly through your music, and I'm so blessed to be with you today. Thank you. She's fantastic. <laughs> I always like coming back to First Universalist. It's always a wonderful place to preach. I like this pulpit, I like this mic, but I'm mad at Justin. <laughs> because he has a habit, I mean, if, if it weren't for him, I wouldn't write sermons and I wouldn't preach because he calls me and asks me to do this every now and then, and I'm grateful. But he tends to call me or email me at the most difficult moment I'm having of my day or when I'm really busy multitasking about 16 different things. And he says, what's the title of the sermon for next, next two months from now? And I'm like, <laughs> and can you give me a little brief description? I'm like, I'm gonna have to wait on the description. So I looked around at the books I was reading at the time. And I said, ah, that'll do. <laughs> then, like <laughs> weeks later, someone comes up to me and says, I heard the title that you're preaching at First Universalist. Dang! <laughs> and I said, oh, I gotta write that. <laughs> then I gotta preach it in front of all of you. So, here goes. <laughs> My mom, said it would be a short ride to my cousin's house. She would take a shortcut through Cabbage Town, which is just outside of Atlanta. As I looked out of the window in the back seat, searching for cabbages along the highway, I saw low, long houses on sandy red clay. I saw an old mill in the distance. I saw lots of old cars on the lawn. I saw women and men chatting with one another, laughing. And I saw little kids playing in the dirt with toys. That was the first time I laid eyes on these kind of people. And my curiosity kept my head pressed against the window in the back seat. It was late, and my dad was finishing up work in his office in downtown Philadelphia, and a man came up to him on Broad Street with tussled blonde hair and asked him if he could spare some change. First, I was stunned that this man was asking my dad, a very important person in Philadelphia, for money. I stared, disappointed, as my father dug into his pocket and gave him all the loose change he had, the same loose change that I had asked for an hour earlier. <laughs> as the man walked away, I curiously wondered why this man was a beggar. My great-grandfather, 
whose father was an enslaved person, liked to tell stories. One day, he was telling a tall tale about something that had happened back in the day, turn of the century, the last century, and he looked at all the adults in the room, past all of us kids who were listening intently, and he said, well, you know they ain't nothing but a whole lot of poor white trash. And everybody fell out laughing. And I laughed too. But I wasn't sure what I was laughing at until many years later in South Boston. There, I was working with youth living in public housing. One afternoon, I went into the home of one of these kids I was working with, had to talk to mom, and mom directed me to have a seat. And as I looked down to get ready to take a seat, I saw that I was going to be sitting on the full front seat of a Mustang, serving as a couch. I sat down carefully as if in a foreign land, waiting for the right social cues for my next move in this strange place. These were the people I brushed up against, drove by, heard about. These were the other white people. These were the white people that I and everyone around me had nothing but disdain for. They were the butt of our jokes as we watched Beverly Hillbillies and Hee Haw as kids. Later, they morphed into Honey Boo Boo and Duck Dynasty. And they became sort of humorless, uh, humorous pop culture junk food for me and my friends that would accompany us as we drank our craft beer at an art gallery. <laughs> These were the one group of people that my upper middle class friends of all backgrounds could agree that we were better than. Now, according to Nancy Eisenberg, author of White Trash, The Untold 400-Year History of Class in America, my attitudes about this population had been carefully curated by the deliberate myths of noble Puritans, bronze statues, and the delusion that America is a classless society. Growing up in Philadelphia and going to college and living in Boston, I was surrounded by things from the Puritans, the Founding Fathers. Lots of statues. <laughs> These childhood fantasies and falsehood about America's bootstrap options for white people over time gave way to the truth and I thank my professor, Howard Zinn, in 1976 for telling me the truth that America is a class-based society. Long before Occupy Wall Street and Bernie Sanders, long before there was a country at all. 
In this book, White Trash, Eisenberg takes a very particular look at class in the United States, examining the white outcasts whom politicians, from Andrew Jackson to Donald Trump, have sought to rally, but who otherwise have remained vilified, shunned, targeted, and kept apart, both physically in poor houses and trailer parks through eugenic science and discrimination policies, and in the nation's cultural imagination, where they have inspired mockery, kitsch, and unceasing grimaces, chuckles, and eye-rolling. One of America's founding myths, of course, is that the simple act of leaving England and boldly starting a new life in the colonies would have an equalizing effect on the colonists, swiftly narrowing the distances between indentured servant and merchant, landowner and clerk, all except the Africans, of course. We were taught to believe the new world was seen as a land of freedom and possibility, hope. The truth is, it was widely viewed as an unproductive wasteland, an ideal place to ship England's deplorables. While some Europeans did cross the Atlantic to seek religious and political freedom, many more came as convict, convicts, prostitutes, orphans, and servants. In 1619, King James I was so fed up with the little vagrant kids milling around his new market palace that he asked the Virginia Company to ship all of them overseas. Three years later, John Donne, you all know John Donne, right? Well, John Donne is a fabulous poet. Yeah, he's a very, very distinguished poet. Yes, 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 John Donne, yeah, of course, of course, John Donne. Well, he wrote about the colony of Virginia as if it were England's spleen and liver. He said, the ill humors of the body need to be shipped away, basically, to breed good blood to breed good blood. Colonial America was a place where the surplus poor, the waste people of England, could be converted into economic assets. England's most destitute city dwellers were sent here, including hundreds and hundreds of children, shipped to the colonies in a practice known as spiriting. You've heard spiriting away. Well, they, what they did when they spirited away, they would take kids like Elizabeth, little Bess Armstrong, and send her to Virginia for stealing two spoons. Five years old. Our founding fathers, who supposedly cherished the creed of equality for all, had far less faith in the common white man. Benjamin Franklin opposed giving alms to the unemployed poor whites, 
fearing it would encourage them to be idle. Thomas Jefferson urged the creation of a uniquely American stock of hardworking, virtuous citizens and thought that those who did not measure up were like livestock, thus being unfit for breeding. The poor were seen as expendable and deserving of scorn. Waste people, off-scourings, lubbers, bog trotters, so much rooted in the land because the land they were on that was often marginalized was to be the distinguishing characteristic of what people thought would be their character. Wasteland for waste people. Rubbish, squatters, crackers, clay eaters, tackies, mudsills, scallywags, briar hoppers, hillbillies, lowdowners, white niggers, degenerates, white trash, rednecks, trailer trash, swamp people. Terms such as cracker began as an Americanism that brought pejorative English notions of idleness and vagrancy to this side of the Atlantic, where it also served as shorthand for landless migrants. You see, land undergirded the enduring class hierarchy as property ownership determines the social pecking order today. Hereditary titles may have gradually disappeared, but large land grants and land titles remain central to the American system of privilege. Now, White Trash is a cringeworthy book, and it's a worthwhile history lesson I recommend. It's a chronology of the caste system that has existed in our country from the beginning. Secondly, it is an effort to explain through amazing stories and details why some white people seem hopelessly relegated to a lower rung on the economic ladder, a position that has as much to do with cultural heritage as it does with financial resources. Finally, I believe that this book is a cautionary tale about how poor white people are manipulated systematically and purposefully to be excluded from the full participation in the society in which we live. Poor white people are reminded every day, every day they're reminded that Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Washington DC, Hollywood can get along fine without them. And that very few people are willing to make a genuine effort to get to know who they are and to improve their well-being. Meanwhile, it's statistically probable that their wages are stagnant, their kids' education is subpar, their water is at risk for sudden chemical poisoning, moms may drink too much, and dads are dying from what the Center for Disease Control called a few weeks ago a death of despair. That's what the CDC is calling it, a deaths, deaths of despair. White men are suffering in this country. 
as a result of opiates and a massive increase in suicides. Poor white trash means unwanted, disposable, non-human. Whether we admit it or not, we have come to accept white trash as an inevitability. Like the trash in our kitchens, we just stick it as far away as possible so that we don't have to smell it. While I experienced a re-education reading this book, there were three questions that kept me up at night that I want to share with you today. You know, when a preacher stops, says, I'm going to share this with you, then takes a glass of water, you're in for trouble. <laughs> Number one, <laughs> the first question I had and it was kind of funny because I would run around, you know my partner Ashley Haran is also a UU minister's preach here. I would run around and go, Ashley, did you know that your people back in the day, did you know? Every day I was doing this. The book's 500 pages, so every day I had a little something to tell her. And it became a little annoying. But the question was, why was I this upper middle class African-American black person, educated, non-poor, never been poor, so interested in poor white people? Was it the gaze at Cabbage Town and the stories of my great-grandfather and car seat couches that made me a voyeur, peeking into the windows of white poverty? to understand why these white people could seemingly take advantage of reaping the fruits of being white in America? Why? With every new fact of their oppression, I had a strange schizophrenic compassion for these people who were victims of the same system and ideology that exploited black people. In fact, when I read that there was a movement to sterilize poor white women in the 30s and serious academic PhD pursuits in an attempt to classify poor white people as a distinct and other race, <laughs> I chuckled. I smiled, but I was smiling because I was dreaming. I was dreaming that if more people knew this history, maybe it could spark the multiracial poor people's campaign of Dr. King again. Maybe we could rise together in a kind of unity that recognized that we were all under the same foot of the oppressor. Maybe we would realize that we were connected through these policies and twisted beliefs about our humanity. But that fantasy would go away quickly. And then all of a sudden, my mind would go into the lived experience. And of those angry white faces, and one angry white face in particular, one angry, vicious white female face of a 15-year-old girl, white girl, standing behind a 15-year-old black girl. You know the picture. 
1957, and she's trying to go into this newly integrated school in Little Rock, Arkansas. You remember that face? Yes, famous photograph, amazing story about those two women years later. I encourage you to look into it. But now, reading this book and looking at this face again, I wanted to know who she was. So I did some research and I found out the woman's name was Hazel Bryan, who in 1958 would drop out of high school, marry, and live in a trailer. Her father was a disabled veteran, unable to work. Her mother held a job at Westinghouse part-time. Neither parents graduated high school. Hazel was the face for America of Southern white trash from that era. Ignorant, unrepentant, and congenitally cruel. But the real story behind Hazel Bryan is that white elites rigged the system so poor whites got slightly better schools, slightly better jobs, slightly better housing, and they were expected to defend this slightly better that they were given against me, people of color, specifically black people, often violently. Poor whites ended up on the short end of the stick, but they fought in the knowledge that they were at least better off than their black counterparts who got very little. You know, President you know, Johnson was an amazing storyteller. Those of you old enough to remember LBJ. And one of the things that I love that he said was that, you know, you can take the, I think, the poorest white man, the poorest white man, the meanest white man, put him up against the, the best black man, and tell him he's better than him, and he'll believe it. All the while, the banks and everybody else is picking their pocket. In fact, they'd give you everything that they had in their pocket as long as they could be just a little bit better than that black man. Johnson had his eye on what was happening. I, I soon realized that my fascination with poor white people came from my early affiliation in Boston with Unitarian Universalism and Socialist Workers' Party that I had joined very early at 14. For I had a sincere and passionate, unrelenting desire to see a multiracial revolution develop in this country that would wake and shake these people to join hands together to seek economic justice for all citizens. That's why I was so fascinated. I saw potential. The second question that kept me up was, this is going to be kind of personal here for y'all. <laughs> Why was I so unsatisfied in my conversations with white UUs about class? And I was particularly unsatisfied talking about class in the context of our association. Because we rarely discuss it. And when we do, we often focus on the theoretical poor or the nameless homeless. 
When I have advocated for the poor white man, which I have done on a number of occasions, I get very strange looks. I get very strange looks. When I ask, why don't you bring, I asked somebody this in the UU church recently, I won't say what church, but when I ask, why don't you bring that cousin you don't talk to because he voted for Trump to church with you? I get dismissed and I was told specifically that I was ridiculous. As if these white people undergoing the challenges that they go through of disenfranchisement deserve relatively little sympathy. That this cousin kind of had his reckoning coming. I have heard you use refer to these cousins as layabouts drenched in self-pity or described as sad cases consumed with racial status anxiety and animus towards the non-whites passing them on the economic ladder. I have received both responses and in their own ways, in both ways, they were strikingly ungenerous towards a huge number of fellow Americans. Just ungenerous. Yet Unitarian Universalists like being allies to people of color. Amen? <laughs> I always said, it, I just live a few blocks from here, I said, if I ever get stopped by the police near this church, I'm gonna run my ass to First Universalist as fast as I can, because Black Lives Matter here. <laughs> if the police chase me, I'm running in here. Because I know y'all got my back, right? <laughs> oh, we love being allies to people of color. Some of us are armchair allies that watch Rachel Maddow, eight o'clock, right? Yeah. And listen to Amy Goodman, two o'clock, right? Yeah, yeah, 9.50. Some of us are cocktail party allies. These are the ones I like. They like to come up to you, and uh, I watch them with one another, these white allies talking, and I see one with trying to one-up the other one who's drinking the Merlot and tell them about their protest logs or their financial contributions. And of course, there are those who have gone full in and immersed themselves in another culture. In fact, move into that neighborhood to gain more empathy for the struggle, to be amongst the people. They'll usually move into the neighborhood of color and only to gentrify the neighborhood through their tacit demands for goat cheese and better coffee at the corner store. I've been that person. You know who I'm talking about. Friends, can we reconcile the rhetoric? Can we reconcile the rhetoric of a universal free faith with the reality of our present class-bound composition and our self-serving selective alliances? Can we empathize with the working class, particularly the ones suffering from what Marx called alienation? Think about it. If you're a skilled craftsperson and like to work with your hands, you might be a UU, right? Tinker, tinker. But if you make a living by renting out your muscles and selling your time permanently, 
Not just until your novel gets published. You probably aren't a UU. Every survey of our movement has demonstrated beyond question its peculiar class structure. We are, whether we recognize it or not, still tied as we are to colleges and university and the dominant professional groups of this country. I'd like to suggest, though, that our class identity may be less a result of our wealth and more of a consequence of educational levels that we have attained and value. It may be our style, our spirituality, based on those dominant educational levels, rather than our theology, which defines us as a movement. How many of you think of yourself as being part of a movement? Raise your hands if you really believe we're part of a movement. Don't raise your hands if you don't believe it. A few. We are a movement. We are a movement. And I firmly believe that we can transform and evolve. We can get unstuck and we can reframe our positions to extend our belief in the inherent worth and dignity to those white people we have never considered worthy enough to speak to or spend time with. When I sat on that car couch in South Boston, I realized how far the UUA was on Beacon Hill. Just a couple miles, but it was far away from Southie. It was far away from these people's realities. The scope of their world was limited because of deliberate policy that kept them out of sight of the Boston Brahmins. But instead of me just connecting the sociological and political dots of their existence, which I am prone to, I connected in relationship to this family in Southie by listening to their stories, eating with them, drinking with them, laughing with them. Yes, with people that had been stereotyped as being too racist, too stupid, too whatever, to engage across race and class with me. More of us need to do this, and the good news is, in the last couple of years, class conversations are emerging in our association. People are sharing their class stories, and they are also providing tools for us to use, to examine class hegemony that keeps us from creating space for multi-class communities. The UU Class Conversations website, and I encourage you all to go home and read it, describe in detail how UUs need greater awareness of class and they provide practical things that a congregation can do to address these issues and assumptions. For instance, they pose the following question. Does your congregation or do your committees require leaders to spend their own money and then get reimbursed for things? This prohibits people without funds from rising in leadership. Do your members start off asking a new member, what do you do? 
does the water ceremony always revolve around places we've traveled over the summer? This water from Bali. This water from Dubai. Are all of your meetings and events geared towards people with nine to five jobs? How does someone with a three to 11 shift get to participate in the life of this church? Are meetings and events held at the church or is hosting things at people's homes part of their culture? How does this feel for someone who can never host because they've heard everybody say that they live in a bad neighborhood? How do you speak about ethical obligations? Are you making people who cannot afford ethical eating feel marginalized? Oh, you brought Folgers? We only use fair trade coffee, I'm sorry. Are you presenting things as ethical obligations which are financially impossible for many people to live up to? Are you guilt tripping them? Equality. <laughs> Equality is simultaneously the greatest accomplishment and the greatest failure of this country. It's the place where idealism and reality come to blows in our culture. Despite the glossy veneer of political correctness, which has been painted over the rust and corrosion of centuries of racism and classism, the enduring American necessity of a social other has chosen poor and working class white people as the focal scapegoat of our time. Now, before I take my seat, you know, if you trust a black pastor who says that, that means they're gonna speak for another hour. <laughs> before I take my seat, I want to remind us that our theology has a vision to begin the world anew, to begin the world anew. And this must be with all kinds of people, not just with the social circles we create or like-minded progressives and liberals. It must be practiced in an ever-intentional manner and in ever-widening circles of faith if it's going to be truly transformational. Perhaps this is how Unitarian Universalism can fulfill its democratic vision and become more than a faith for a few. But it requires us to remain conscious of our implicit and explicit biases. Rather than having conversations about we as haves can invite have-nots to share our congregation or share our church, can we instead have conversations which say this is what we believe all in our church should be able to do? Now how will we make it possible for everyone? 
You know, uh, we have a thing about scholarships. Scholarships and, and, and other eyes as people sometimes. You ask us and we'll take care of this thing that you're gonna get for free and everybody else is paying for. It leaves a nasty taste in the mouths of poor and working class people sometimes. So forget charity and embrace solidarity and be transformed. We are in a critical time in this country and our resistance as Unitarian Universalists must include our own transformation, both internally and externally. Our resistance needs to resist everything about the current ruling class, especially their exclusivity. Now, a recent post by a liberal group called Occupy Democrats, anybody ever heard of them? Mm-hmm. Okay, a recent post from Occupy Democrats tells me that we may have a long way to go. It featured the familiar fear of an imaginary Hillary Clinton deplorable named Gary, and our response to Gary. And it said in one quote from that post, they're stealing our jobs. Yes, Gary, with your high school diploma, Muhammad, the neurologist, is stealing your job. Chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. Another one said, uh, watched an interview with the rural folks from Kentucky, and they're pinning their hopes on Trump bringing back the one factory in their town. Good luck with that. Maybe if they had thought about getting an education instead of plopping out babies right and left, they would have well-paying jobs with a secure employment. Occupied Democrats. We, by which I mean the people who strive to stand in opposition to these Trumpian values of exclusivity and indifference, cannot cherry pick which people to include and empathize with. Call them white trash, rubbish, rednecks, townies, hillbillies, or call him Gary from Southern Ohio who dropped out of college because he couldn't afford it or he got frustrated taking remedial reading classes. His career choice of factory worker or bartender or busboy or retail clerk or gas station clerk, day laborer or janitor is not really a choice. He is our neighbor, our brother, your cousin, your uncle, and fellow citizen. And his inability to make a decent living in his town is due to circumstances and attitudes and policies that are far outside his control. These things were set in motion centuries ago, and they have not changed very much since then. So what's my third question that I ask myself? Since all of you are so involved in making my black life matter, <laughs> I ask you, when are you going to make the lives of your own poor white people among you matter as much.